friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. Um, if, as y'all know, we've been in this isms, so to speak, this beautiful participation series. And I started thinking about it, and I was thinking about, have y'all ever been in a conversation where the way it starts so heavily covers colors it that the back end you really don't hear as well. This is what I mean. Like someone comes to you and goes, ooh, I hate that color on you, but your hair looks good. Like you probably didn't catch the hair compliment as strongly, right? Or if somebody comes to you and goes, hey, the HR team was trying to fire you, but I let them know that you're pretty valuable and I think it's all good. Like you're not going to leave that day thinking, oh, my job is secure. Or maybe a boyfriend tells a girlfriend, I don't want to be your boyfriend anymore because I want to be your fiance. Like that's the world's worst proposal. Do not propose that way. And I was thinking about, we started this sermon series, and Martin and I agreed. We've been talking about sort of these isms of the decline of the church, especially the evangelical church. And so Martin and I agreed, hey, look, we don't want to preach a single Sunday where all we're doing is just dogging on the church, just critiquing the church. Because the reality is it's kind of fun to do that. It's it's kind of in right now. I don't know if y'all have caught it, but it's pretty fun to make fun of Christians right now. And I'm not going to lie, it's delicious for myself at times, too. And so we said, no, 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 that's not appropriate as members of the Bride of Christ. So we said we want to end each sermon by talking about not just the decline, but what is a more beautiful way to participate in God's church. But to that end, we might have done a better job selling the isms. I don't think we did, but we might have, right? You might have left here going, I know about moralism, but maybe I didn't hear the part about humility. I know about separatism but maybe I didn't hear respectful engagement, individualism versus community, dualism versus a vision for all of life, anti-intellectualism versus scholarship, anti-institutionalism versus accountability, and the one I'm pretty sure he made up, enculturationism versus cultural reflection. I think Martin and I tried to be as faithful as we could to say, no, 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 there's something really beautiful here, and it's not a bad thing to self-critique. In fact, that's a mark of maturity. Mature people are able to say, I think I messed up before anyone even brings it to them. That's a mark of maturity, and it's a mark of the Christian church when we're at our best to be self-critical. But I also want to make sure that as we close out this sermon series about the beautiful bride, that I really highlight the beauty of the church. What I don't want is at the end of all these weeks of talking about the decline of the American church, that we're left either with a hopelessness about where we're headed Or we're left thinking she's not that beautiful. She's so marred and so broken. Because in fact, the bride is very beautiful. The church of God is very beautiful. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is just what makes the bride beautiful. And so I wrote this down. And since we talked about anti-intellectualism a few weeks ago, I get to say this sentence now. We're going to look at her beauty ontologically, missiologically, and eschatologically. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just couldn't help myself. We're going to look at... What makes her beautiful in her essence, her ontology, this idea of what makes her beautiful by her existence. We're going to look at what makes her beautiful in the way that she engages the world. And we're going to look at what makes her beautiful in terms of where she's headed, where we as the bride are headed. And so those are the three ways that we're going to look at the bride's beauty this morning. But as I talk about the bride of Christ being beautiful, as I talk about the church being beautiful, I'm also talking about you. So I hope that as you hear me talk about the collective, I hope you will also hear this is what makes you beautiful as well as members of his church. So let's jump in. The first thing we're talking about this morning is the church is beautiful 
because God makes her so. The church is beautiful because God makes her beautiful. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. And this is a passage that's embedded in a passage on husbands and wives. You'll notice I didn't use the verses that have the S word in it, submission. I just moved right past those. But this is a passage that's often debated hotly or used at weddings. And what gets missed is the beautiful picture of what Christ does for the bride. So I want you to really hear this passage. Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but she instead is holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for this word and for the sermon. Lord, thank you for preserving your word. We're going to talk about your scripture this morning. Would you allow my words to be beautiful, true, and right? Would you allow it to honor you? And would you allow it to encourage and sanctify the rest of us, Lord? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. The church is beautiful because God makes her so. Like I said, this passage, Ephesians 5, is, is put in a section in Ephesians where it's in the household codes. Toward the end of Ephesians, Paul is talking to the, to the Christians in Ephesus, and he's saying this is how husbands should be, how wives, how children, how slaves, and all of that. But I want you to catch what it is that Christ does for his bride, the church. In our passage, he loves her, he gives himself for her, he makes us holy, he cleanses us by the washing of the word, he presents us to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or anything like that. We are holy and blameless. Why is the church beautiful? Because Christ makes us beautiful. It's not because we get the isms right. The, the, the moralism or the anti it's not that. It's because the spotless Lamb of God came and took away the sins of the world. And in doing so, he presents us back to himself as his beautiful spotless bride. Which means that if you are a member of God's body, if you are a member of his bride, his church, and you are feeling shame or unclean or unworthy, May I remind you that you have been made by the blood of the lamb and the washing of the word clean completely. This is your new reality. He, Ephesians 5, he says he presents us to himself. Like, can you imagine on your wedding day, God can give himself any gift that he wants. And he's like, oh, I just want my bride back to me. Like, I'm going to gift myself the bride. That's what he chooses. And it says that he presents us to him with splendor. That word, that Greek word there, some of you might have glorious what it means is it's possessing an inherent quality that's not ordinary. It's glorious. It's splendid. Being held in high esteem, honored, distinguished, imminent. Have you ever been described that way? Some of you have. Good for you. For the rest of us, here she is, glorious, splendid, high esteem, honored, distinguished, imminent because of the work of Christ on our behalf. The church is unbelievably beautiful because Christ makes us glorious. He makes us extraordinary. He sets us apart. This is who we are as the people of God. This is our identity. This is what our being is, is that we are the beautiful bride of Christ. And we may not always act like it. 
Like we've spent seven weeks talking about, we don't always act like it, but that doesn't make the reality any less true because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We are beautiful because of Christ's work. And so when we talked about the isms, like when we talked about the moralism and all that stuff, what we realized when we got behind it, the driving force behind so many of the ways that the church is failing right now, the real driving force is not because we want to fail. It's not just because we don't want to be the good bride. The reason why so many of those isms are true is we learned it came out of fear and feelings of unworthiness. That's what drove the isms, fear and unworthiness. What if then... We bathed our imaginations of ourselves and others in this picture of what it means to be God's bride. We would see ourselves primarily because of the work of Christ in our lives as worthy, and we would see others as worthy and splendid and glorious. What if our imaginations were bathed in Ephesians 5 as opposed to bathed in fear and feelings of unworthiness? If we looked at ourselves and we saw the finished work of Christ in our life and the result of that life, which is being spotless, blameless, and holy, I know these isms would have a much less tight grip on us. The church is beautiful because Christ makes her beautiful. But she's also beautiful when she acts beautifully in this world. Not only is the church beautiful because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, but when we lean into that identity, the church is also beautiful when we do acts of beauty in this world. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, and then 5, 12 through 22. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. Did you know that was in the Bible? To mind your own business? And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil to evil for anyone. But always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. And stay away from every kind of evil. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. And if you remember, the church in Thessalonica, the way it got started is Paul goes there. And he begins preaching the gospel. And if you remember, the Thessalonians hated it. And they ran them out of town. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And not only did they run them out of their town, they followed them to the next town and ran them out. Like, can you imagine how mad you are to get in your car and drive to Irving to keep griping? At some, like, how angry you have to be. So the Thessalonians were not kind to Paul and his companions. But Paul was able to establish the church there. And this is the letter, this beautiful letter we get from Paul. This really precious letter telling the Thessalonians how to behave in a world surrounded by non-believers who are very angry, very vitriolic, very frustrated about, about Christianity. And then we get this letter. 
If it were me, it would have been snarky. It would have said, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right? Like, hopefully not. But it might have, you know, if they're going to act like that and make their lives miserable, you know what, just hunker down among the Christians, be good to each other, and leave the others to fend for themselves. And that's not what Paul tells them. He says, live good lives around those outsiders. Be patient with them. Help the weak. Don't repay evil for evil, but pursue what is good. That's an amazing message in that context. If what God does flows from who God is, in other words, his, his essence actually determines his activity. So God is good, which means he does good. God is love, which means he loves. God is just, which means he seeks justice. If we are made in an image of a God who is like that, then we should also expect that when our lives are corresponding with who it is that God has made us, then we should expect our activity flows from who God is making us to be. In other words, if Christ's work has made us beautiful, then when we live into that reality, we should act beautifully in the world. And by God's grace, we are actually able to do that. Because God has made us good, God has made us holy, God has made us blameless. When we choose to live in that reality, to lean in that reality of who God has made us to be, we're able to do acts of goodness and kindness. The isms that we've been talking about, they can spell a really ugly and even harmful picture of the church. I imagine many of you in the last few weeks when we've preached on this have not only thought about how you've experienced that, but how it has hurt you. Maybe you've been somewhere where you didn't fit the bill and you felt what it was like to be on the wrong side of the culture war. Or maybe you've been somewhere where somebody's desire to be morally good meant they separated themselves from you when you needed them the most. My guess is that many of you in this room, that when we talked about the isms, not only did you go, not, I don't just see that, I've experienced that. And that is a true picture of the church, but it is not the whole picture of the church, not even close. The reality is, is yes, the church fails many times, but the church also has so much good and beauty within her as well. John Dickinson, he's an Australian scholar, he wrote this book, Bullies and Saints, and he actually wrote it in response to the fact that he's, he's an Aussie, he's from down under. I was going to try the accent, but Alan's here, so I'm not going to do it. But he lives in Australia, which is very much a post-Christian nation, and so is the UK as well, and they did a poll in Australia And in the UK, and the overwhelming majority of people in those countries believe that religion is actually more harmful than good. The world would be better off if we didn't have organized religion, the majority. And he says what's interesting is when you push a little farther, they don't actually mean all religions. They mean Christianity. That we would be better off if there was no Christianity. And what's crazy is America, the numbers actually 39% agree to. Four in ten people think Christianity is more harmful than good in this country today. So he wrote this book, and he said part of the reason why people think that is Christians haven't been honest when we have failed. So he wanted to write a book where he says, yeah, we failed. There are bullies in our history. He said, but if I'm going to tell the whole story, there's also a lot of saints. There's a lot of good. And so much of what I'm about to say, in fact, almost all of what I'm about to say I stole from John. I got to meet him a couple of years ago, and we talked about this book. And I said, what has been, like, the reception of this book? Like, how have people received it? And he goes, non-Christians love it, Christians hate it. I said, well, i got to read that then. It's a phenomenal book. But this is how he starts it. He says, I admit to feeling a deep sympathy, affinity even, for anyone who thinks Christianity has done more harm than good. 
there will be much to bolster that impression in what follows. He's very honest in this book. But at the same time, I cannot shake the conviction that the evidence demands we acknowledge that even the darkest moments of Christian history and today, the flame that Christ himself lit to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you had a habit of exposing the darkness from within and then reigniting itself through the church. And this book, the book he wrote, is a tribute to both. Or he says, to offer another metaphor to which I'll return, Christ wrote a beautiful tune, which the church has often performed well and often badly, but the melody was never completely drowned out. John says, when you look at church history, even in our darkest moments, if you really look, there's a flame of goodness because of what Christ ignited in our lives, and it doesn't go out. Because of the work of Christ for us and in us, a lot of good comes from the church. A lot of beauty comes from the church. So I hope you're asking, well, how? How do we see that in this world? Because we know the isms. Anybody can point out the harm Christianity does. How has Christianity impacted the world for good? First of all, the sanctity of human life. If you compare the Judeo-Christian view of the human life in the first century compared to the, like the average Greco-Roman view of life, there is no comparison in terms of good and bad. Like we think today it is a humanism thing to say, oh, all lives are valuable. No, 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 no. That was not true in the first century. Not even close in the first century. That is a Judeo-Christian view that all life is precious. So I'm going to read to you a letter from a soldier. He's writing back to his wife. He's away at war. And it's just a very normal letter that a wife would expect to get from her husband. And what I want you to notice what he says about the, the child that she's carrying. His name's Hilarion, and he writes to his wife, Alice. Many greetings, and also to my lady, Berus, and Apollinarian. I'm still in Alexandria, and don't worry. If the whole army sets out, I'm going to stay in Alexandria. I want to ask you, make sure you take care of our child. They already have one child. And if I receive my pay soon, don't worry, I'll send it to you. But above all, if you bear a child and it's male, then great, let it be. But if it's female, just cast it out. And you have told Aphrodisias, do not forgive me. But how can I forget you? Thus I'm asking you not to worry the 29th year of this. Here's a soldier riding home to his wife. If it's a girl, just toss her out. We don't have the money. And that should shock us. But in the first century, it's very normal. We have Aristotle writing, as to exposing or rearing the children born, please don't raise any deformed children. Just toss out children with deformities. Lord, have mercy. Disposing of newborns was a way of family planning. It was just a normal way of life. And they would throw children, often discarded in the trash heap or even in the road if you couldn't afford it, or God forbid the child was a girl or they had a disability. And the child was just left outside. Many times traffickers would pick it up or an animal would pick it up or it would just fall prey to the elements. This was normal behavior in the first century. And because of Christians, view of the Imago Dei, because Christians said this is not as it should be. Christians went around picking up those children and adopting them. Christians pled with the Roman leaders, please make a ban on killing infants. This is an absolute horror to the dignity of life. And it led to a complete ban on killing infants in the law of 374. Three centuries it took before Christian influence reached it. But Christians were unequivocal in their ability to say, no, life is precious. Even babies with disabilities or babies that happen to be girls. This is the mark of the good of the bride of Christ. We have been consistent in the pro-life movement. We started it. 
Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We started the pro-life movement. We started adoptions. This is who we are. Another way the church has been beautiful is we had a peaceful resistance against evil and persecution in the first 300 years. Pliny the Younger, he's a historian, and he has been told by Trajan, just murder all the Christians, they're causing problems. And Pliny's like, "Mm, I just don't want to willy-nilly kill anybody. And so this is what he writes. This is what he literally says about how he's going to decide who to murder. He says, for the moment, this is the line I've taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person, are you a Christian? And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, warning of the punishment. You will die. And if they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admonition, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. Oh, you're a Christian? Are you sure? Yes. No, are you sure? Because I'm going to kill you. Yes. Well, that obstinacy, that needs to be put down. And we don't have any records of the Christians fighting. They march off to their deaths because they don't want to repay evil with evil. This letter that Paul sends to the Thessalonians is not a theoretical letter for the Christians. And she is so beautiful that when in the face of real danger, they're willing to just receive the persecution and not repay evil with evil. This is when the church is most beautiful. How else is she beautiful? Charity. We invented charity. Did y'all know that? That's us. That's our idea. How cool is that? Teresa Morgan, she wrote the standard book on the ethics in the Greco-Roman world. She says there's no such thing as charity in the Greco-Roman world. None. If you are wealthy, you see your wealth as a tool to gain loyalty or benefaction. And in fact, it was believed poor are poor because they must have done something wrong. So this is a right punishment. You don't have charity until the Greco-Roman world and when the Judeo-Christian ethic comes along. And this is what Teresa Morgan says. She's not a Christian. This is what she says about Christians in the first century. She says, they taught that God loves them so absolutely that on that basis they can trust in God and they can love that God. And because they're given such an abundance of love, they can afford to love one another with enormous unreserved generosity. This is what an ethicist is saying. It's a completely different model of relations with your fellow human beings and how your relationship with God affects your relationship with human beings from anything in ancient religious thinking ever. We've never seen anything like this is what she's saying. And with that idea of love goes care of the vulnerable. This is a world with no safety, social safety nets, but Christians in the first century created social safety nets. They are the people who are notorious We were known for looking after widows, the poor, the orphans. Where have you heard that before? And the people who in society are slung to the street. In the year 250, it was said that the church in Rome had a a role that every day they fed over 1,500 impoverished people. In the Cyprian plague, which was compared to the bubonic plague, many people just threw their children and their, their sick family members out on the streets. And Dionysus writes about how the Christians, to their great loss and great harm, would go care for those in the plague because they didn't want people to die alone. This is a really beautiful church. In the ancient world, people could not understand it. Why are you doing this? You're not, they're not even your family. This person's got the plague. You're going to get sick and die. And they say, well... I don't want my neighbor to be alone in their most painful of moments. The Cappadocians, who you've heard Martin talk about because they're brilliant theologians, did you know that they were also known for their writings on charity? And Basil started the first hospital. 
The Roman army had hospitals. The rich had hospitals. And you could, if you chose to worship Asclepius, you could go and get care from this pagan god. But what if you were a Christian who just happened to be poor? Basil the Great started a hospital where people of all different backgrounds could come and receive care. The church is beautiful when she acts like she's loved by God and she lives into that reality. Because of the finished work of Christ, God has made us beautiful. And when we choose to live into that, the world cannot help but say, this is different. And I gave you all examples in the first three centuries today. Men of Nehemiah, our calling, Brother Bills, where Jonah has worked, the well, which is why we're partnering with them. There it is. There's the shaming you into it. Abide Women's Health, Advocates for Community Transformation, Cocaine Anonymous. On and on we can go because the love of Christ has compelled people to be a place where the world can be met with love and mercy and goodness and beauty. When the church is acting like what Christ made her to be, she is unbelievably beautiful. And it's, it makes the wondering world just stop and go, why are you doing this? John's book, it gives a very honest picture. There are plenty, we have failed plenty of times, and he's brutally honest about that. And I think that's healthy. The church has done ugly things. But because of the work of Christ, we are still beautiful. And when we lean into that reality, we do some of the most beautiful things the world has ever seen. And it changes the world. We're beautiful because of the finished work of Christ. We're beautiful when we live missionally into that beauty. And finally, the church has a really beautiful ending. In Revelation 21, 1 through 6, what we read about in Ephesians 5 will be a reality. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and they will be and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, this is our reality. And then in Revelation 21, John backs it up and says, this is where we're going, to a place where there's no more ugly, just beauty forevermore. No more isms, no more moralism, no more separatism, no more isms, no more individualism. You will not be in heaven with no friends. Which could be good or bad, depending on where you're at right now. But you won't feel lonely. You won't feel shame. You won't feel unworthy. You won't feel hunger. You won't thirst. You won't fear. No more pain. And that's where we're going, where there is only goodness, truth, and beauty forever and ever and ever and ever. And we'll all be there as the bride of Christ, beautifully adorned. And we will never experience another ugly thing again. And such good news, we won't do ugly things again. Because many of us in this room not only have experienced the ugly, we have done the ugly. And we will be made fully beautiful 
We will fully image God. We will stop saying the things we wished and didn't say. We'll be fully good, fully loving, fully kind, fully joyful, fully lovely in every way ever conceived fully forever. Never, 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 never. The church was made beautiful by Christ on Calvary, but we also have to act beautifully now in the way we mystereologically meet the world when we are at our best. But we are also headed for a day when we won't have to strive so hard to be beautiful. We just will be because the work will be finished and we'll be God's beautiful bride. We might not even recognize each other. C.S. Lewis says if we could see ourselves as we will be, we would be creatures that we would, if we saw each other, we would just fall down and worship each other. Like you imagine you see each other and you're like, you know, you're not as snarky as you used to be. You're not as funny as you used to be either because you used to be at the expense of others. So what's that like? You're kind of boring in heaven. And I'll be like, yeah. But I don't have any more insecurities, so that's why. So what's our so what for us? If we're God's beautiful bride, what's our so what? Know who you are, be who you are, like who you are. This is just good advice. Know who you are, be who you are, like who you are. Who are you? You are God's beautiful bride. Because of his work on the cross, you are God's beautiful bride. So be that. Live into that beauty now. Do beautiful things now because we know that that beauty is what will last in the end. And finally, like who you are. Join the chorus of voices who worships the beautiful God and enjoys the bride now. It is easy to dunk on the church. We have messed up and we need self-critique. Trust me, we need self-critique. But we're also his bride. And when we're at our best, nobody does charity and mercy and goodness better than us. That's who we are because we've been transformed by the one who is merciful, good, and beautiful. We should know who we are, we should be who we are, and we should like who we are. The bride isn't beautiful because she doesn't make mistakes. She's beautiful because Christ pays for those mistakes. His blood is what makes us glorious and splendid. And so we can be honest about our ugly and say, that's not of Christ. That is not worthy of the God that I follow. And I messed up. And when we do that, it makes us even more beautiful. But we also have to push beyond the self-critique into the splendid, glorious, beautiful call in Christ to ground our beauty in the finished work of Christ and get after the beautiful work now because the day is coming when we will be fully beautiful and we get to participate in that today. So let's be a beautiful church. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and you do good and you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, though you have already finished the work on the cross, we live in this already, not yet. Would you help us to lean into the already? Let that be our primary identity that drives us. And while we wait for the final culmination of beauty, would you help us to do good and beautiful things? Would you let the world marvel at your people? And would you help us to be quick to ask for forgiveness when we do wrong? Change us. Make us more beautiful. Make us more like your son, who's the epitome of beauty. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And God's people said,